what is money doing to us, I think would be better approached as what are we doing to the money. Before going to the ancient precepts, which will shed light on our entire approach to occupation, work, and money, I've assembled uh, from various sources latest research about the role of affluence and choice and how increased affluence and an increase in freedom to do whatever you want does not lead to an increase in happiness. Uh, most of this research comes from social scientists uh, uh, making their studies, their surveys in the past 10 years. It's a cutting-edge field. I'm sure most of you are aware of the latest spate of research in terms of how uh, the measured happiness of a nation doesn't correspond with its gross national product. And in fact, how many countries which uh, seem to be economically less advanced uh, come up with higher happiness scores. I'd like to approach that subject from a more individualistic angle in terms of how an increase in choice, which generally is the outcome of an increase in income, doesn't increase the happiness and it in fact increases the distress. This is the universal outcome of the latest research. Particularly I'll concentrate on the research by Robert Lane of my old alma mater, Yale University, and then also to touch upon the work of the late Nobel Prize winner, psychologist and economist, economist it's a special combination, Herbert Simon of Carnegie Mellon. Let's look at this situation. Generally, uh, you construe happiness to mean that you have the money to explore so many options, so many alternatives. And when there are not many alternatives, then life loses its zest, it loses its charm. I remember during my stint behind the Iron Curtain, uh, how the greatest expressed misery of the people there was not simply a lack of political freedom. Mainly they expressed to me their lack of economic choices. The old communist regimes would build huge supermarkets to mimic the West, to show the people that we can do it too. But if you go down the long rows of shelves in those huge supermarkets, the shelves are just contained the same product. <laughs> uh, I remember once landing in the airport in Sofia, Bulgaria, and I needed to rent a car. So, mimicking Western capitalist airports, <coughs> there was a long row of uh, rental car companies, Hertz, Avis, Eurocar, and you know, 
other outfits like that. So as I, I didn't see anyone behind the counter, but as I approached the counter, uh, one lady appeared. I picked out her, so I approached that counter. Lady appeared, and yes, yes, what can I do for you? And then someone else picked up, uh, picked out another counter, Avis, which was down at the other end, and the lady said, excuse me, she ran down to the other end, Avis. <laughs> and someone else chose Intercar, and she ran to that counter, Intercar. <laughs> and it turned out that basically it was the government, you know, just fronting at these various private concerns. <laughs> so, from one point of view, I guess that would be very efficient, you know, why, why not just have uh, one uh, product? Uh, but people in Eastern Europe, were very, they felt great misery about this. Especially those who lived in East Berlin. Uh, they could see West German television. And they could see all the products that were available. All the choices. I don't know uh, how deeply this would impact upon you. But uh, just the presence of choice for those who had no choice. It, it seemed such a upsetting thing. We can only have one type of car, and we have to go on a 10-year waiting list to get the only type of car available. Mm -hmm. uh, there's only uh, uh, one type of pot, and everyone in the whole neighborhood has the same type of pot. I remember uh, mothers telling me that you have to know the day to go to the shop to wait online for two hours to get the one type of pot that will be available. And then two weeks later, you have to know the day to go, on, to, go to the shop and wait online to get the one type of pot lid for that pot <laughs> when that's available. And this way, your whole life is a struggle just to get the one kind of thing that's available. I had the misfortune of <coughs> enraging the East German government by helping some of its citizens <laughs> or inmates to escape. And they called that crime kidnapping. Uh, if you help any of their citizens to cross over the border, then it's an automatic 20-year prison sentence because you have kidnapped. Uh, so. I did that because we had some spiritual practitioners of bhakti yoga, Krishna consciousness, and they were being, uh, they were under surveillance and about to be taken in. And so we had to get them out through various ruses. And so I'll never forget the reaction. We got them uh, false passports, because uh, as soon as they would get to West Germany, the West Germans would immediately classified them as Germans, and you know, they'd be welcomed and honored, but they were considered criminals to try to escape East Germany. So, we landed the airport in Vienna, Austria, uh, after leaving Eastern Europe. And I'll never forget the reaction of this one young man, his first time uh, in you know, the world of economic opportunity. We, we left the airport, and then we uh, drove on the street, and there was a uh, petrol station, a gas station on every corner, and he just literally shook it in the car. <laughs> Why were different, you know, petrol companies on the same street intersection? 
He looked at me like, uh-huh. is, is everything in the West like this? Four types <laughs> on the same street corner, same intersection. So what we may take for granted, I soon realize someone else finds quite psychologically astonishing. It really was a major psychological event for him to see this. He, he literally jumped in his seat. <laughs> and you just take it as normal. Well, there should be varieties of this, varieties of that. That's what makes life so nice, consumer choice. Well, let's hear the latest sociological uh, research about that. <clears throat> and this research indicates large-scale social trends. The more choice there is, based on increased affluence, then there is a decreased well-being in affluent societies. Let's look at that place across the border, that infamous social experiment known as the United States of America. <laughs> little, little New Zealand likes to always poke fun at Uncle Sam. They're very proud that they don't allow any of the U.S. Navy's nuclear warships to, you know, to park in the harbor, so. <laughs> All right. The gross domestic product has more than doubled in the past 30 years. Yet the proportion of the population describing itself as very happy has declined by about 5%. So think about that. GDP doubles in 30 years. The proportion of the population describing itself as very happy, describing itself as very happy, declines by 5%. That means 14 million people. And, of course, bear in mind, the numbers of the clinically depressed has increased uh, quite a bit. So, naturally, you can't single out a, a one factor for decreased well-being. But there is strong, there's a strong leading of the evidence to show that the explosion of choice plays an important role in decreased happiness. In the research by uh, the late Herbert Simon, uh, the psychologist and economist, Nobel Prize winner, he divided uh, groups of people into maximizers and satisficers. The maximizer, that's the, 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 uh, the essence of the consumerist. The essence of someone who, with their intelligence, wants to deliberate and choose amongst many options what is the best, how to live the best life. And then you have what he called the satisficers, those who just aim for good enough. <laughs> All right. Now, hmm. The maximizer is someone who doesn't want to settle for second best. The maximizer constantly analyzes product reviews, sifts through endless choices, uh, researches his choice endlessly until finally with great agony the maximizer settles on this is the best choice for the moment. The satisfied, however, just looks around and makes the best choice out of what's available, doesn't invest so much of his or her psychology into the choice, and leaves it at that. Now, who do you think comes out 
happiest according to a measurable standard. Mm. It turns out that the maximizers are the least happy. In fact, their lack of happiness reaches, for many of them, to the borders of clinical depression because they're never satisfied. As soon as they finally make a choice amongst so many possibilities, they have the affluence, they have the money to choose, then they feel, well, what if I had chosen something else? Maybe the other choice would have been better. And even after they make their choice, make their purchase, they're still racking their brains. Is what I have the best? And maybe I, you know, maybe I made a mistake and someone else has something better. Maybe I didn't choose the right thing, the right holiday destination, the right uh, car. Uh, so in this way, they torture themselves uh, thinking that there's so many other choices out there that they didn't take the time to research. Whereas the satisficer finds an item that meets their standards and stops, stops looking. The maximizers, even after they make their choice, they are still reading labels, checking out consumer magazines, trying new products, even after they made their choice. And they're just addicted to this. Now, today's society would consider the maximizers to be the cutting edge. These are the kind of people, the intelligent buyers, the intelligent choosers, who are, are, are the vanguard of an, an affluent society. But according to the latest social research, these kind of people are the vanguard of clinical depression. Very embarrassing. So, there are some inbuilt uh, problems with constantly seeking to have lots of choices and choosing amongst those choices. But first, some more data from Columbia University psychologists, Rachel Elwert and Sheena Ayenga. They found, they did a survey of college seniors seeking employment. They looked at the maximizers, and they indeed found that the maximizers, those who would really get into the job hunt, sifting through all the potential employers, uh, analyzing the companies, the corporations, the opportunities they offer, just uh, uh, talking to everyone about it, analyzing every aspect of the nth degree, they found those kind of persons did indeed end up with jobs that were, that paid 20% higher salaries. Yet, they were, they were least satisfied with the jobs they got and, bear this in mind, they were least satisfied with the entire searching process. So yes, they scored 20% higher salaries, but they were weary from the process and they weren't satisfied with the jobs they got, even though they had sifted through so many possibilities with such diligence. They were not as happy as the satisficers, who got one or two or three uh, employment offers, decided uh, this one, I'll go for that, and were satisfied with the simplicity. They were more, these kind of persons were more happy. Now, uh, what does this kind of information say for our society, the way people are urged to live? People are generally urged that 
Get the money so you can have more choices. Get the money so that you can have a wider range of relationships, a wider range of uh, consumer goods available to you, a wider range of holiday spots. I remember my mother telling me, my little boy, she said, you know, I married my childhood sweetheart, my high school sweetheart, when I was 20. Don't do what I did. Just hold off as long as possible, experience the wide range of choices, shop around, and then don't do what I did. So that is the general conception in an affluent society uh, in terms of all the possible uh, mm, deliberations in life. The more choice you have and the more time you have to choose and the more you think about it, the happier you'll be. And this is why people want increased affluence. We're not talking about survival, of course. We're talking about the climbing uh, the affluence scale. Your hope is it goes beyond security. It goes to more choice. I can decide, shall I go to Paris, or shall I go to the Bahamas, or, or do I just go to Niagara Falls? <laughs> so that is the psychological boost researchers have seen that affluence gives. It's not about security and survival anymore. Uh, the lure of the first world <coughs> is choice. And I saw that so markedly demonstrated in communist Europe. The people were depressed, number one, not because of their political oppression, but because of economic oppression. No choice. The only way your choice options would increase is if you had hard currency from the West. And then in these communist countries, there were special shops where if you managed to get Western money from relatives, or somehow or other you got the Western money, that you go to these dollar shops and get all the wide range of consumer goods from the West. And you wouldn't be restricted to the choices that were available to those only possessing uh, money from the, uh, the communist countries. So the people, this was a big thing in their mind. I've got some dollars, I can go to the dollar shop. And there they could dream. So many brands of whiskeys from overseas, cosmetics, I can't explain to you how they viewed this as heaven. They were going to heaven. We take all these things for granted, but I saw for eight years, I experienced how people view themselves when they feel they don't have enough choice and how they envy those who have choice. So, now we're finding out that this proliferation of choice has enormous psychological and social consequences. Mm. Let's see some of the inbuilt factors in the wide range of choice. First of all, there's something that mm, psychologists call, social psychologists in particular, call opportunity costs. You can't analyze the value of a particular option in isolation from all the possible alternatives. What does that mean, opportunity cost? It means that, let's say, you choose to go on a vacation to Paris. Now, in order to consider the value 
of that choice. You also have to factor in uh, you're not going to other places because you're not going to other places will nag at you. Well, I went to Paris for my two-week vacation, but I could have gone to Acapulco. Maybe Acapulco might have been better. I think I had a good time in Paris, but I wonder how others feel when they, the ones who went to Acapulco or went to the Bahamas. These are opportunity costs, and they do weigh on the psyche very heavily. So, because of the opportunity costs, we experience less satisfaction from our ultimate decision. It's not that I have chosen to go to Paris, now I've gone there, I'm satisfied. <laughs> no. People are not being trained to think in that way. They're being trained to think that you went to Paris, but what about? Maybe it's time to go to Shanghai. You should have gone to China. Isn't that the latest? Uh, India. So many tourists are now going to India. Ayurveda health spas in South India. You didn't go there. You spend your time uh, going to Paris. Or you could have gone other places. You have the money to choose, but you don't have the time. And you spend your time going to one place and not the other. Did you really make the right decision? So in this way, your affluence doesn't translate into happiness. It becomes a burden. <laughs> Whereas someone who's, a, who's what uh, uh, Herbert Simon called the satisficer, that person would be considered happy-go-lucky, casual, carefree, not really on the cutting edge. Well, I looked at a few uh, adverts for travel destinations. I got one travel magazine. I did five minutes of searching on the internet, and I decided, you know, I'm just going to Bermuda. That kind of person is looked down on today. Hey, I mean, you know, look, you should have spent you know, at least 48 hours of solid research on the internet. You should have compared at least 10 different offers. You should have seen at least 20 travel agents and talked to 50 people who had gone on vacation and then made your decision. <laughs> this is what's going on now. So, let's bear in mind the opportunity costs. But first, before going further into the inbuilt uh, psychological dynamics. I want to give you a picture of a typical maximizer. Let's see if any of us may fit into this category. Whenever I'm faced with a choice, I try to imagine what all the other possibilities are, even ones that aren't present at the moment. <laughs> no matter how satisfied I am with my job, it's only right for me to be on the lookout for better opportunities. When I'm in the car listening to the radio, I often check other stations to see if something better is playing, even if I am relatively satisfied with what I'm listening to. When I watch TV, I channel surf, often scanning through the available options, even while attempting to watch one program. <laughs> now, I, um, I don't think any of you are in this category, but I think it sounds familiar. <laughs> you know quite a few persons who... <laughs> who fit into this and are proud of it. Indeed, this is looked at, this kind of, this syndrome is looked at as progressive, the pinnacle of evolutionary development. <laughs> I treat relationships like clothing. I expect to try a lot on before finding the perfect fit. I often find it difficult to shop for a gift for a friend. 
Renting videos is really difficult. I'm always struggling to pick the best one. When shopping, I have a hard time finding clothing that I really love. I'm a big fan of lists. Lists that attempt to rank things. The best movies, the best books, the best singers, the best athletes. I find that writing is very difficult, even if it's just writing a letter to a friend, because it's so hard to word things just right. I often do several drafts of even simple things. No matter what I do, I have the highest standards for myself. I never settle for second best. I often fantasize about living in ways that are quite different from my actual life. So, this characterization uh, of human behavior is considered to be the vanguard. This is progressive. This is where we should all be going to. But when we look at the psychological results, uh, we may be a bit shocked. This kind of behavior leads to stress, anxiety, and even to the borders of clinical depression. <coughs> now, <coughs> we talked about opportunity costs. You have to factor in the value of the other options that you didn't choose. Next, let's talk about regret. Regret adds to the opportunity cost. That just like mm, you may feel sorry, oh, I should have gone to Acapulco instead of Paris. You feel sorry that you didn't go to Acapulco, but you can also feel regret that you went to Paris. In other words, even if you went to Paris, and you were satisfied, still the opportunity costs kick in, and you think, maybe Acapulco, oh. Regret goes even further. Not only do you feel anxiety because you didn't go to Acapulco, but you also regret you went to Paris. So things just escalate. So these are real psychological dynamics that people are feeling. Mm. And naturally, as you would expect, those who consider themselves maximizers, or those who can, who will fit in that category, they have the highest regret sensitivity. And if that regret nags at their hearts to such a degree that they can just brood about it. Why did I do this? I can't imagine. I can't believe I made the choice. I made the wrong choice. I overlooked a better option. Me. If <laughs> they just really put themselves into a tizzy about it. I'm sure you know persons who are like that. Uh, so, there's only one way for the maximizer to not regret a decision, and that is by making the best possible decision. And in making the best possible decision, you drive yourself crazy. Uh, this way, <laughs> life is going on. Now, <clears throat> there's something uh, known as adaptation. This psychological principles are becoming more and more well-known. Uh, you make your choice. Let's say you decide you're going to get a BMW instead of a Mercedes. And mm, once you make your acquisition, there's decreasing satisfaction. At first, there's a thrill as you step into the brand new BMW and drive. Or it can be for any uh, choice of affluence. There's a thrill. But adaptation means that gradually 
the novelty wears off. And uh, indeed, you begin to consider other options. So after the first thrill wears off of your driving your BMW, uh, one week or two weeks later, two weeks later, you're, you're starting to think, I wonder how it feels to drive a Mercedes. Or what about a Lexus? This is a natural uh, psychological syndrome. In other words, you can't be left in peace. Your affluence does not create peace. It does not create uh, inner satisfaction. Indeed, it doesn't even lead to a neutral state. It leads to dissatisfaction. And this is very difficult to understand. I remember in my days in Eastern Europe, in the communist bloc, people, could, people there could not understand how there could be social problems in the West when there were so many choices available. And maybe we ourselves have a difficult time understanding how increased choice causes psychological problems. So adaptation means that the so-called pleasure will wane. You adapt to it. You adapt to your new acquisition, whether it's a new job, uh, a new partner, uh, a new car. You adapt to it, meaning the thrill is gone. There's decreasing freshness. That is a psychological cost of any choice you make. Now, there is the research of uh, Daniel Gilbert of Harvard and Timothy Wilson of the University of Virginia. They've released their research in the past few years. They show a quite interesting thing. Uh, some of you may have read this book, Stumbling Upon Happiness. That people consistently mispredict how long good experiences will make them feel good and how long bad experiences will make them feel bad. The waning of pleasure or enjoyment over a period of time always seems to come as an unpleasant surprise. And it causes more disappointment in a world of many options. This is the nature of the mind and how it deludes us. You'll find this subject matter extensively explored in the ancient spiritual texts of India. How your mind can be your worst enemy and it can also be your best friend. In Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna urges you, conquer the mind, otherwise your mind will put you into so many complicated states of being. And your own mind will constantly cheat you. So now we're finding psychological research that brings out uh, these ancient teachings. The human mind constantly mispredicts how long you're going to feel good from something. You project far into the future. If I just get this option, if I just make this choice, I've got the money now. Or if I get that money, I can purchase happiness that's going to be that's going to last for so long. We always overshoot the mark, way over, and then we're quite shocked and disappointed to realize I got very little of what I expected. Not only that, but we also the research shows underestimate the bad experiences the duration of bad experiences. We always mm, uh, measure that in very short periods of time. Okay, I'll feel bad for a little bit and then it'll go away. 
simultaneously, I'll feel good for a long time. <laughs> but this is the mind, the nature of the human mind cheating its possessor. All these attributes lead to uh, acute dissatisfaction, <coughs> uh, acute inner instability. So, when you are talking about people's drive for more money and what money can do, please once again bear in mind, you're not talking about stability, security, <coughs> survival. You're in another arena in which money is supposed to lead to more options and more options translates directly into more happiness. But research has tossed all that out. You've got the opportunity cost. You've got adaptation in which no matter what you get for yourself, the flavor is going to diminish. Here's another interesting phenomenon. The curse of high expectations. It's very, very revealing how social scientists are now attacking uh, with their research. When I say attacking with their research, I mean they're applying their, their, their social scientist skills to these very crucial areas of the human experience. And uh, as we'll see when we go to the old part of our discussion, the ancient knowledge, we'll see that uh, these principles have already been enunciated uh, uh, quite some time before. So it's very interesting to see the, the evidence from research backing up these age-old principles. In 1999, there was a uh, poll taken by the New York Times and CBS News. They questioned teenagers of affluent families. And they found that in these, these teenagers belonging to affluent families, 50% of them said their lives were harder than the lives of their parents. 50%. So the teenagers were questioned further. Why do you feel that way? Why do you feel that your life is much harder than, than what your parents experienced when they were growing up? And they said that the devil is high expectations. Uh, the expectations of their parents that the children had to meet, and also the expectations the children, the teenagers had of themselves. <laughs> they said this is a great burden, and therefore they felt their lives are mm, much more difficult than the lives of their parents. And they talked about things like too muchness, too many activities, too many consumer choices, too much to learn. And the main pressure they talked about that they felt was they didn't want to slide back. Uh, one psychologist called this the American nightmare, falling back. Sliding back to a level beneath what your parents uh, were on. This is, oh, this is hell. Uh, the children, the teenagers, felt this pressure. We can't slide back. We have to do better than what our parents did. So in other words, the higher your perch, the, the further you have to fall. So they're feeling this, you know, the dizziness of these heights, and, and it's not that they're enjoying. Oh, our parents have created such a nice life for us. We have so many choices, affluent teenagers. Uh, 
I can remember anecdotal evidence from my own life. Uh, I was a scholarship student uh, both at Yale and before I went to Yale at prep school, one of these posh prep schools in New Hampshire. And so uh, there I was as a 13-year-old uh, surrounded by DuPont kids, Rockefeller kids, you know, through the Kennedy clan. And <laughs> They were kind of looking at me like, uh, what are you doing here? <laughs> this is back in 67 or 68, so. <laughs> uh, what is the school trying to do? Uh, you know, go out of their way to add a little brown to the population? <laughs> so, I was amazed. I couldn't, I could, let's look at it from a psychological point of view. I couldn't understand it when I saw these kids arguing and fighting with each other. Your father is filthy rich. He's worth 10 million. My family's respectable. We're just a, you know, a solid millionaire's family. But your father's way over the top. <laughs> and they would actually be, I, I, I could, I, uh, I'm not, I'm presenting this in terms of, uh, you know, uh, interesting laboratory experience. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't relate to it. I couldn't understand it. I, oh, your father's worth 10 million, and his father's only worth 1 million. So, his, so the 1 million family is respectable, whereas the 10 million family is filthy rich. <laughs> For me, a million dollars, I mean, <laughs> So, uh, for me, I mean, when I was uh, 13 years old, my mother told me, like, if you want money, you're going to have to work. So I went out and delivered 100 newspapers before going to, before going to high school. And then, <laughs> and then the next year, I, I, I got this scholarship. I went to prep school. But otherwise, uh, I was financially self-supporting when I was 13. So. Now, suddenly I'm in an environment where people are arguing, kids are arguing, your father's filthy rich, 10 million, my family is humble and respectable, only one million. <laughs> you can imagine, my head was just you know, shaking. <laughs> so, now the research is coming out, the curse of high expectations. And I saw amongst these, these kids, uh, the greatest disaster for them was not to fa follow the family tradition, not to be qualified enough to go to Harvard or Yale or, or Princeton, uh, and not to even go to a, any Ivy League school, but to have to go to University of Massachusetts, <laughs> University of New Hampshire, Boston College, Boston University. Oh, they're in such anxiety. What will my father say? <laughs> oh no, I can't. I, I, I don't want to show him my, my, the news of my college admissions. Oh, no. <laughs> and then they would look at me with such envy, uh, forgetting that, you know, my family was nowhere near millionaire status. In fact, it was just quite ordinary middle class. Uh, but they looked, you're going to Yale. How did you do it? How did you do it? Oh, how can I save my father? <laughs> Three generations of my family went to Yale, and now my only option is University of Maryland. Oh, no! <laughs> you can't imagine the anxiety these kids were in. I'm, I'm serious. A few of them, one or two of them out of a class of 40, one or two of them were on the brink of suicide because of this. I remember having to talk one kid out of suicide. Oh, stop talking in July. You know, he was in such anxiety because he was going to have to go to the University of Denver. Uh, 
Then some other kids consoled him. It's a party school, it's just your type. You'll be all right. <laughs> but, uh, and then I remember other kids you know, of the few, let's say out of a graduating class of 45, 10 went to Ivy League schools. So they, the 10 who were going to Ivy League schools all crowded around me. Hey, you're in our group, we're the ones who made it. <laughs> they, they really, you know, they felt like, we've made it. <laughs> we're, we're the club, we're the upper echelons, we're the elites, we made it. <laughs> so all these feelings were quite unique to me because I'm, I was not coming from that kind of social background. I was just like a, an amazed social scientist watching all this ethnic phenomena. <laughs> uh, so there is, once again, the curse of high expectations. Now, we shouldn't forget about the link to depression. Uh, when we make decisions, experience the consequences, and find that they do not live up to expectations, we blame ourselves. And disappointing outcomes constitute personal failures. So, such maximizers, persons who are considered to be the cutting edge of society, they are prime candidates for clinical depression. A strong correlation has been found between maximizing and measures of depression. So, it is no longer conjecture, it is no longer a supposition. It is uh, the verdict has been reached. Increased choice brings increased misery. Now, if we look at money as not just for survival or maintenance of our existence in this world, but as a tool for more choice, uh, then we should understand this is a prime means of causing our future suffering. We have to rethink our whole outlook towards money and work. Now, I want to take you far back into the past to the postgraduate study of Bhagavad Gita. This work is called Shrimad Bhagavatam. And we find some very powerful precepts there. These precepts, I feel, can mm, revolutionize our misdirected civilization. And revolutionize, not politically, but in terms of happiness. I'll first read the Sanskrit and then we'll discuss the translation. Dharmasya yapavarnasya nartota yopakalpate nartasya dharmaikantasya kamo labhaya isvitaha. Translation. All occupational engagements are certainly meant for ultimate liberation. They should never be performed for material gain. Furthermore, according to sages, one who is engaged in the ultimate occupational service should never use material gain to cultivate sense gratification. Now, allow me to discuss. This verse has two components. It's referring to occupational engagements, work in general, and it's referring to what is called the ultimate occupational service, that means spiritual development. That is recognized as an occupation in the ancient Vedic culture. One who is engaged in the ultimate occupational service 
spiritual development should never have as the goal of that spiritual development prosperity, material prosperity. But first, let's deal with component A. All occupational engagements are certainly meant for ultimate liberation. Now, just think, if we begin to look at our work, at our, at our occupation as a tool for spiritual development, the whole situation changes. Rather than look at our work, our business, our occupation as a means to acquire increased choices, which will supposedly lead to increased satisfaction, instead we look at our work, our business, as a tool for spiritual development. In other words, uh, you take for granted that, yes, I'll maintain my, 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 my existence, I'll maintain the body, uh, I'll, I'll have food, shelter, clothing, and so on. But the main purpose of my working is how to generate uh, spiritual development for myself and others. Once you become absorbed in this kind of vision, you start to live simply. Especially when we go to the next verse, Kamasya nendriya pritir labo jivetsa yavata jivasya tattvajigyasa narta yascheha karmavi Life's desires should never be directed towards sense gratification. One should desire only a healthy life or self-preservation, since a human being is meant for inquiry about the absolute truth. Nothing else should be the goal of one's works. Now, this kind of, these principles will allow for a total transformation of society. If people consider that my goal in life is uh, spiritual development, seeking the absolute truth, they'll always be overwhelmed with the, that kind of research, that kind of exploration, and therefore they'll automatically live simply. They won't seek to expand their material choices. In fact, they'll want their material choices to be quite straightforward and, and, and easily dealt with so they can maintain maximum intellectual power and energy for trying to understand what is the ultimate goal of life, what is the supreme absolute truth. In that way, naturally, uh, people will live simply. Simple living, high thinking, instead of, what is it today? High living and no thinking. <laughs> if, as a cultural priority, <coughs> uh, people have as their, as their goal, <clears throat> trying to understand spiritual development, what is the absolute truth, the rest of their life will simplify. We were discussing this last night, how in Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna says, Param Vista Navartate. You may try to control your senses and resist the lower urges, but you will fail. You'll succeed only if you get the higher taste to replace the lower taste. You can't repress yourselves. We were remembering last night the, the campaign by Nancy Reagan, wife of uh, Ronald Reagan when he was president of the USA. She felt mm, saddened by the drug problem and she started a campaign called Just Say No. Now, in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, the Just Say No program will not work. <laughs> uh, people have to have something better 
to replace the lower urges, the, uh, the lower behavior. So similarly, when we look at work, money, and society, if people are participants uh, in a culture of spiritual seeking, automatically <coughs> their material needs become simpler, and automatically they're not going to plunge into an ever-increasing ocean of, of material choice. In fact, they don't want that. They don't want so many material choices weighing on their mind. They find it to be a burden. I've got better things to do with my life, better things to do with my intelligence than consider you know, countless options of what I should wear, where should I go. Uh, they want it very simple. Just tell me what the best thing is. I'll get that. I'm not going to worry about the opportunity cost. I made my decision. I know there's always going to be something better. That's the way this world is. But I've got better things to do with my consciousness. In this way, uh, society becomes a much better place to live in. Now, I'd like to focus on this point that occupations are meant for ultimate liberation, for spiritual development. Liberation here, of course, doesn't mean political liberation or economic liberation. It means liberation from material illusion. How can all occupational engagements have that as their goal? Does that mean when I go to work, when I go to my business, I'm, my prime purpose is how to expand my spiritual development and how to expand the spiritual development of others. This causes a complete uh, uh, overhaul of our motivations. And then what will follow is a complete overhaul of our working experience. Just think, and I know so many of you, of course, do this. Uh, uh, if you view your work as uh, a means for providing for yourself a in a, a home environment for spiritual development. You'll be much more favorably inclined to your work. If you view your work as a, a mechanism for providing spiritual environments for others, you, you, you feel much more uh, at, at peace with your work, no matter what it is. Uh, and naturally, we'd all like to be working for uh, companies and corporations that have a benign influence on society, but it's not always possible. And uh, these days you'll always find some catch somewhere that, well, well this particular job, 80% it has a good social impact. But then, in some areas, it's always like that. And it, it, often it's unavoidable. But, regardless of Mm. the social impact or environmental impact of whatever company you're working for, if you yourself have the goal that my occupational engagement is mainly meant for spiritual development, then uh, you can be at peace and you can create peace for others. Naturally, if you can arrange to work for uh, a concern that is 100% benign in its social impact. So much the better, but not everyone can do that. Uh, regardless, though, if you look at your work as a tool for spiritual advancement, then your whole relationship with that work changes. You're not seeing the goal of your work as increased affluence. You're seeing the goal of your work uh, as spiritual development, and therefore, 
You want to see in yourself how by my working I am increasing in my spirituality. Life becomes very exciting in that way. You want to see how by your work effort you're developing spiritual qualities. You want to see how you're able to help others develop their spiritual qualities through your work. It's not simply by the money you make, it's also by the time. Because as we know in Western society, time is money. So uh, you can contribute your money, you can contribute your time, uh, and in fact, your whole work effort can be looked at as an offering of devotion. This is Lord Krishna's prime teaching in Bhagavad Gita. Remember, for those of you who have read Bhagavad Gita, this is the standard spiritual text of ancient India, revered throughout the world today. The prime teaching by Lord Krishna is not to a sadhu or a brahmana, not to a spiritual intellectual, but to a military man. And Lord Krishna spoke to this military man, not in a mandir or a temple or religious uh, <coughs> building, but on a battlefield in between two opposing armies. And in Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna explains to Arjuna that you can do your occupation as a devotional activity, as an offering. Even something as controversial and provoking as a military engagement. Uh, Krishna taught Arjuna, uh, you can do that as an offering to me if you are actually protecting the innocent with your military efforts and you're actually uh, reducing the suffering uh, and, and wrongdoing, then uh, if there's no other choice and there has to be a military option, you, you can consider that you're, even being a military man can be an occupation leading to liberation. By the way, we're not speaking about holy wars or this or that, you know, this is something else. This is about protection, just like if uh, someone is being mugged on the street, you would naturally expect that the police would, should stop such, such criminal activity. That's what Krishna is talking about, not ideological battles. He's talking about actually protection of those who are being uh, uh, criminalized. And our, that was Arjuna's occupation. So, if even uh, military occupation can be spiritualized, what to speak of business, what to speak of our, our own uh, non-martial activities. Just by taking this principle seriously, we can see, a, we can easily envision a whole transformation of society. If everyone starts to think, how is it that my work can be meant for liberation, spiritual emancipation? Now, the next sentence, such engagements should never be performed for material gain. Oh, this is can be quite upsetting. What do you mean? I'm going to work and it's not for material gain? <laughs> now, I realize amongst the audience here, you wouldn't find this principle very strange, but many people are shocked when they hear this. They're quite sure. I'm going to work for money, and when I get the money, I have more choices, and then there's more happiness. That's the way it is. But here, we learn. Occupational engagement should never be performed for material gain. Does that mean you throw away the game? No, I don't want to be paid this week. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not what it's about. Uh, it means that whatever gain you get, you use as much as possible for spiritual development of yourself and others. 
Yes, you must take care of your body. You have to maintain yourself. That is assumed. You see, often when I bring these points up, uh, people immediately object, hey, uh, we live in the real world. We've got to pay mortgages and car payments, you know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Sounds nice, these platitudes you're giving us, but... Uh, <laughs> 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 and if, just because you are working with spiritual development as your main goal, they assume that you're not caring about paying your mortgage. No. Why do they take it to such an extreme? <laughs> this shows a particular mentality that as soon as you mention spiritual development, you can't be talking about maintaining your body. <laughs> Where does this kind of mentality come from? It, it, it shows the poison of society, the way it's structured today. Uh, why can't you, while maintaining your body, maintaining your food, clothing, shelter, as a routine concern, why can't your main concern be spiritual development with your work? This is all that the texts are saying. But people just love to jump to extremes. Oh. And then they get on my case, if everyone lived like you, how would the world go on? <laughs> and then sometimes I have to be a little, just a tiny bit sarcastic and say, don't worry, not everyone's going to live like me. <laughs> There'll be enough materialists to push things on, don't worry. <laughs> There'll be no shortage of them, have no fear. <laughs> so, in the, in the Srimad Bhagavatam, we see, number one, life's desires should never be directed towards sense gratification. One should desire only a healthy life or self-preservation. Fair enough. But that's, not, that's a tertiary, shall we say, or secondary goal. Your main goal is something else. And those who have uh, the wherewithal, those who have uh, the economic uh, prosperity, uh, to really put this principle in action, they can do the greatest good for society. Uh, you can't expect someone in a third world country who's barely scratching out survival to take these principles so seriously, although many of them do. If you tour the villages of India, you'll find uh, people who know about these ancient precepts and live like that, and even though they're from the Western point of view, barely surviving, they actually understand these principles. But that kind of lifestyle is not going to impress the first world. So for impressing the first world, we need persons like you who can understand these principles and can apply them and then show other persons who have economic mm, skills, economic prosperity, economic blessing. You can show what to do with your work what to do with your business. And this way, a, a major transformation can occur. In other words, why should I make a big deal about just maintaining my body, eating, having shelter? These things are done quite easily and simply. It's not my main concentration. Yes, I take care of it. Yes, I do it. I maintain my body. I maintain my family uh, economically. But the main purpose of my going to work is how to generate sp spiritual development for myself, for my family, and for the world. That's my main purpose. Uh, not how to increase my choices, increase my options, and drive myself to the point of clinical depression. Not into that. <laughs> so, this is the great opportunity. Uh, how to turn around a completely bewildered material civilization in which everyone is thinking, 
economic development, and then sense gratification. Those are the only two issues in life. How are you going to make money? And what are you going to buy? What are your choices going to be? That's it. Nothing more to life. So therefore, for most people, as we discussed last night, they have their own mantra, which they meditate upon every day. Maybe not consciously, but certainly unconsciously. Very simple mantra. Work, buy, consume, die. Work, buy, consume, <laughs> die. That's life as it's being presented to almost everyone today. And, and this, this kind of mantra, trying to pursue it, is causing such havoc in the world, uh, such depression. As you know, the World Health Organization says that uh, clinical depression uh, will be the number two disease in the world in 10 years. And the, guess where the clinical depression is occurring? In, is it occurring in India or is it occurring in you know, uh, poor countries in Africa? No, the, the clinical depression is skyrocketing in the affluent countries. Of course, now India is becoming very affluent. But <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, I was just in uh, Mumbai uh, two months ago speaking at IIT. Indian Institute of Technology, which is considered the MIT of India. So, their students were telling me that they've seen a sudden jump in student suicides, students hanging themselves from the ceiling fans. Uh, 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 they're being warned now about having heart attacks in their 20s, whereas previously in India the worry was about executives in their 40s and 50s having heart attacks. Then it dropped down to the 30s. Now it's in the 20s. That they're warning the students, you know, while you're pursuing those high-tech jobs, uh, bear in mind that there's a great increase in heart attacks amongst 20-year-olds in India now, amongst the privileged class. So, this is how things are panning out. Now, uh, <clears throat> once we consider that, yes, I'm going to take care of my body, I'm going to take care of my family, keep it simple, because my main goal is working for spiritual development. Uh, everything becomes different. You see everything different. You see money as a tool for creating a spiritual atmosphere, for, for helping others spiritually, and you become enlivened. Instead of seeing money as that vehicle which will lead to more choices, and more choices means more happiness. <laughs> this horror that afflicts uh, the general population today. But, we can see differently. We, we can see money as a vehicle for spiritual development. I'm going to work as an exercise in spiritual development because I know what I'm going to do with my money. I'll live simply. I'm not going to be concerned with increasing my material options. I'm going to be concerned with how to generate more spiritual development for myself, for my family, and for others. Then you can be at peace with yourself and you can do the greatest good for the world. So this mm, insight is there in Srimad Bhagavatam. And it's quite uh, amazing in its impact. Just point blank. Dharmacha Hapa Bhagasya. All occupational engagements are certainly meant for ultimate liberation. Now, this is far beyond uh, Adam Smith and Karl Marx. All occupational engagements are meant for the spiritual goal, spiritual attainment. They should never be performed for material gain. These are really uh, unilateral statements. Never be performed for material gain. Uh, go to work with that idea that how, this, 
this, I'm going to increase my spiritual development. This work, this business is a vehicle for that. Uh, everything changes. Uh, then we go to the second part of this text. Uh, furthermore, according to sages, one who is engaged in the ultimate occupational service, that means someone who's full-time engaged in spiritual development, should never use dharma or spiritual development for mm, material purposes. In other words, uh, don't use spirituality as a tool to increase your economic situation. Every religion has its proponents of prosperity light that worship God and your economic blessings will increase. <laughs> worship God and you'll have more money. You'll, this is not just uh, the Protestant work ethic which characterizes great sections of North America. It's there in every religion. It's, it's there in India. Uh, it's there in Islam. Uh, if you're going to be religious, there should be an immediate economic result. And that's actually the point of it all. Uh, if you go to God, he'll give you more. And naturally, when people are in some crisis, they, they, can, they can consider this. I know, my mother, she told me. I mean, she's a very educated person now. Uh, when she was 18 years old, <clears throat> uh, she was accepted at the University of Pennsylvania. I did school. But this was back in the late 40s in the USA, and you know they still had some ethnic discriminations in place then, certainly in the 40s. So they told her, yes, we've accepted you, but we can't give you a penny of scholarship money. Even though you graduated from the top of your class uh, in high school, you're like the top student amongst a thousand graduating seniors. We accept you into, into Penn, but can't give you any money, not one penny. That was the way of saying, uh, <laughs> you, you've got the wrong complexion. <laughs> so, uh, so what did she do? She decided to go to nursing school. That, that occupation was available for her, for her ethnicity. So uh, then, when 15 years later, like the end of the 60s or so, uh, when her children were of age, she went, I remember, this was 1965, I believe, she went to the University of Pennsylvania admissions office and said, do you know that you accepted me for admission in 1948, uh, but you effectively discriminated against me by saying you wouldn't give me a penny of scholarship money, although you had scholarship money available, because it's the principle of Ivy League school that if you're accepted, they just give you whatever money you need to attend, regardless of your financial background. But they told her in the 40s, not a penny. We accept you, but we don't accept you. So she went to them and in 65 and said, this is what happened. And they searched their records. They found out, indeed, she had been granted admission. They saw what they did, and the director of admissions practically cried, what have we done? Now we immediately accept you. We give you all the money you need to attend. We are so ashamed of what we have done. So she's a smart lady, but she told me when I was a little baby, I was sick, very sick, 
and, and there was one prosperity evangelist on the radio, and he said, if you want, if you've got a problem, if you've got a money problem, if you've got a health problem, just put your hand on the radio. I'll pray for you. And she didn't. She didn't. Because, you know, because, you know, and he, of course, it's love for her child, you know, but still, she did it. Because, well, it might work. It might work. She, I put my hand on the radio. I prayed. <laughs> so, uh, that kind of uh, religious motivation will always be there. But, uh, in Shumit Bhagavatam, that kind of religious motivation is considered not very good. It's understandable, but when someone knows something better, they, then uh, it, that would be much better for them to realize that the, those who are engaged in the ultimate occupational service, meaning spiritual development, should not have material gain as their goal. So this clears out the whole phenomenon of uh, spiritual practitioners and spiritual teachers using spiritual development for economic prosperity. It makes things much cleaner, much more transparent, much more healthy. So that's the second part of this text. Uh, the first part, I think, is what we should primarily be concerned with here. All occupations are certainly meant for ultimate liberation. How can I construct my work life, my business life, so that indeed I can turn to anyone and say, my main purpose for work is spiritual development. And to con show people that in a concrete, practical way. This will bring about a transformation in society. So I'd like you to bear in mind the latest research that we presented here, as well as these ancient precepts, and see how it all works together. So I'll stop here. See if you have any questions or comments. Could go on speaking, but you know we have a schedule. We have a lunch. A lot to think about. Yes. Early in your talk, you uh, made a distinction between the, the maximizers and the satisfiers. Yes. And I uh, recall something that I had learned uh, quite a long time ago about the di difference between decisions and choices. Mm -hmm. And you indicated that the satisfiers, you know, basically said, well, what do I need? I made a choice. Mm -hmm. and lived with it and were able to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the maximizers had to look at all of the various alternatives, do all the research, and then decide. Yes. The thing that I learned uh, many years ago is that, that the word decision actually comes from the Latin de pedo, which means to kill. And the process of deciding that you were describing is literally killing off alternatives as opposed to simply choosing what's right. So that, that just kind of struck me as you spoke about mm -hmm. that. Yes, I find this distinction between maximizers and satisficers to be very helpful. Uh, 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 educated person can latch on to this very easily. And I, of course I have to credit uh, the psychologist and economist Herbert Simon uh, for coming up with that term satisficer. And then uh, Robert Lane of Yale University who added the maximizer part. And indeed, unfortunately, we live in a maximizer culture. So if you all can provide people with the vision and perspectives to get out of this rut of intense maximization, that 
that would be a, a great a great benefit to human society as you pointed out yes Actually, I'd just like to add one thing mm. to, to that last comment mm -hmm. I thought when you were giving us that point there was mm -hmm. another piece in between that mm -hmm. and that's the people who work on intuition mm -hmm. but they don't have to do a great amount of research mm -hmm. and they're not just kind of lazy, lazy affair where it's like mm -hmm. oh well I'll go with the flow mm -hmm. it's like really working with your gut feeling um, and honoring that and I think that's the part of our psychology that a lot of people are really cut off from and they don't um, connect to mm -hmm. more than all knowing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what, I think that car might be just the kind of car I need. Maybe do a little bit of research mm -hmm. just to see that it's not a dog mm -hmm. and then go with that. So mm -hmm. I, I felt like it's not totally black or white, there's some space in between there. Okay, I think perhaps I wasn't clear enough uh, uh, about the satisfiers, I probably just went over them briefly because I thought that you all could you would you would all approve of the satisfiers, so I didn't have. Yes, it's not that they're just so laissez faire. Oh well, I'm too lazy to you know sift through all this. Yeah, this looks good uh, because I'm lazy. I don't want to figure out anything else. No, it's just that they uh, they are conscious that my human life is meant for something else. I'm not going to you know, spend endless uh, time pouring over endless possibilities. Uh, and the highest consciousness in which you can be a satisficer is to know that anyway, material acquisitions aren't going to satisfy my heart. So why should I sink so much time, invest so much time into, into it all? There's always going to be some problem. Uh, whether I get this car or that car, the car is going to break at some point. <laughs> or someone's going to bang into it. So let me make the best decision right now amongst my options. I'm not going to consider it endlessly and get on with my spiritual development. <laughs> that was the point of these verses from Shema Bhagavatam. Yes? Um, at, the, at the beginning, you also said that sound can mm -hmm. free you from materialistic goals. Mm -hmm. I wondered if you could explain that. Yes. Uh, mantra, the Sanskrit word mantra, means literally that sound which can deliver your mind deliver your mind from material illusion so when you think about it your material goals developed through sound your associates society your family they buzzed with sound vibrations if you do this you'll be happy uh, if you if you get this things will be better through sound you learned all that and in this way your consciousness was molded just like we can all remember we were teenagers and the teenagers are all buzzing about, you know, discovery of the teenage delights. Ooh, if you do this. Uh, it came to the ear first. And then you began to aspire. You began to desire. Yes, yes. No, that's what it's all about. Okay. That same sound vibration, according to the Vedic text, can be used for liberation. The Sanskrit is anavriti shabda, liberation through sound. The right sound can free your mind from illusion, just as the wrong sound can bury your mind into material illusion. So, the, a genuine mantra uh, serves that purpose. It's not the same as any sound. Sometimes meditators, if we want to get into it briefly, meditators make the mistake of thinking, well, fix your mind on a candle, fix your mind on any sound, and you'll become more peaceful. Mm. 
Yes, your stress levels will go down, your blood pressure will go down, but there's a whole other realm of peace beyond simple physiological peace. That is, uh, that other realm means you're connected to mm, something beyond uh, past, present, and future, something beyond the changes of matter. So that is what Krishna is pointing to in Bhagavad Gita. And so therefore, we had this experience of chanting the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra. Maha means great mantra. As an expressway vehicle to that realm beyond uh, matter, which always has a beginning and an end. So, in short, in a nutshell, uh, if you could consider that. Okay. Yes? Well, if you want me to talk about the educational system as currently known. All right, all right we won't talk about North America. Though we need you, you know, uh, of course, we love to talk about Uncle Sam. <laughs> Their problem. But <laughs> I'll talk about New Zealand. <laughs> if you look at the educational ministry of New Zealand, it says right on their logo, the purpose of education is economic development. So you, you, most of you have seen Lord of the Rings, you've seen the beautiful scenery, the beautiful environment, but what you haven't seen is that those kids living in that beautiful place uh, uh, are becoming so socially dysfunctional. Uh, it's not that they're satisfied living in those beautiful places. In fact, many of them have told me in my work of uh, uh, speaking uh, on both islands in New Zealand, the kids tell me, they say, yeah, we live in beautiful places, and, and guess what? We really get wasted. We really get bombed in those beautiful places. <laughs> <laughs> places that tourists are spending thousands of dollars to go to. Beautiful mountains, beautiful valleys, seashores. All the kids, many of these kids can think of is, anyway, it's a great place to just get completely stoned, because there's nothing else to do. So, that's the educational system. Uh, education is for economic expansion. Economic expansion means more choices, and more choices means more happiness. Finish. This is a problem. Uh, so that is another subject, uh, uh, <laughs> the educational system. Mm, what it's meant for. Well, the kind of persons it's geared to produce. Just like I told you about how at Yale University they allowed me to study whatever I wanted to and they said, don't worry, we'll cobble it together into a major. But that was a brief period of experimentation. Uh, now, things are so, com the competitiveness has increased so much that uh, students want to know not how to have a major, but how to have a double major and a triple major in case the career options of your first major uh, fade by the time you graduate, you have a second major and a third major to fall back on. <laughs> That's how they think. And so many of their parents are pushing their students in this way. Okay, you made it to Yale, you've done great, but you can't just have one major now, honey. You've got to have at least a double major and probably a triple major in order to guarantee your maximum job uh, viability. Think of the pressure these kids are under. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. How would you take the concept of enlightenment mm -hmm. and introduce it to the corporate sector as it is today without scaring them off? Right. What kind of language can you use that the welcome that can maybe open up to some new ideas? Mm -hmm. I'm just, yes. I've been developing that for the past two years, especially speaking uh, at the uh, University of Melbourne in Australia, RMIT, Royal, Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. Uh, and on Tuesday, I'll be speaking at, at the business school here. Yes. Uh, I've assembled first all this, all the state-of-the-art social research, the, the, the quantification, the, the hard evidence, you know. And from there, I mm, go to consciousness about how the fact that scientists cannot understand what is consciousness shows that there's something non-material about our identity. I was speaking about this last night, that there is not one single scientific explanation of why you are conscious and what is consciousness. Now, in Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna explains that consciousness is the energy of the soul. The fact that you can't understand consciousness shows you that there's something materially inexplicable about your identity. If you look at the scientific world, 33% of the scientists approximately will say, we don't know what consciousness is, and we probably never will know. Another 33% say, uh, we don't know, that we can't say whether we'll find out in the future or not. And then the last 33% say, we don't know what it is, but we're sure of one thing, it's material. <laughs> it's a, it comes from the brain, and that's all there is to it. There's nothing hocus-pocus about it, there's nothing spiritual about it. They can't prove that. So that, uh, that is the state of science in terms of consciousness. Uh, I remember uh, looking five years ago at the International Dictionary of Psychology, standard reference text found in university libraries. And there, under consciousness, what did it say? Uh, uh, consciousness is a term uh, often misunderstood. There has not been much, there's never been much valuable written about consciousness, and there probably never will be. <laughs> so, uh, I would go from the kind of uh, social evidence I've presented in the first half of our talk to the discussion of consciousness and, and then point out science's uh, woefully inadequate attempt to understand consciousness and then from there go to spiritual matters and supreme spiritual matters how there is individual consciousness and there is supreme consciousness and the connection between the two so yes that's what I've been doing as of late but I agree with you it's a, it's a tough it's a tough cure I'm not to scare them away. <laughs> uh, so I have to mm, present a lot of uh, scientific uh, evidence. Uh, for this is one. Here, I'll give you just a brief insight. This is one that shakes people up to the extent that they hound me. They they follow me to to the, the car I'm, I come <laughs> to the event in, and they want to see. Let me see the documentation. But this is not anything, but it's not anything, how do you say, uh, it's not far-fetched. It's reported in the most respected scientific journals that there are persons in the UK who have graduated from university, particularly University of Sheffield, and with uh, honors in mathematics, 
and they happened to go to a doctor, and the doctor just noticed, in one particular case, he noticed, the, your head's a bit big, can I, let's just do a CAT scan. And lo and behold, it was discovered that 98.5% of their gray matter was missing. There was water there instead of brain substance. This is on several occasions. And in, 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 in some of these instances, the person graduated with brilliance. But from the, basically you just say they have no brain. <laughs> now, I remember saying this at RMIT in Melbourne, Australia, Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, and the professors just said that they were <laughs> what are you trying to pull? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Swami, you can talk about that Eastern religious stuff, but you know, now you're on our field. You're talking about scientific evidence. <laughs> Get real. I said, no, no. Uh, I'm just telling you what's reported in the most prestigious scientific journals. I can't believe it. They tried to shake literally. I can't believe it. This doesn't make any sense. And then they would chat. How can there be evolution as understood by Darwin if someone can be brilliant with no brain? Well, that's, you have to answer that. <laughs> and I'm not commenting on all of that. I'm just presenting, you know, what the research is. That's all, you know, in a true academic spirit. Uh, I want to see it. I said, well, I have the sources at the flat I'm staying. It's, uh, you, know, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night now. If you. Uh, that's all right. We'll follow you back to where you're And they actually did. I said, okay, here are the references. I, they're literally looking at it and shaking. <laughs> so I bring out things like that. <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> Well, uh, how to leave everything to his will, as you say, that is the art. That is real yoga. That's what Krishna is speaking about in Bhagavad Gita. In other words, Krishna didn't simply tell Arjuna, you drive the chariot, uh, I'll drive your chariot, you just stay in the back and sleep. <laughs> no, he said, you have to engage in your occupational duty, but with a spiritual purpose. He didn't say, don't worry, I'll take care of everything. You just, you know, leave it all up to me and you go sleep in the back. <laughs> now this, this, finally I'll say, I, we do have lunch to go to, but I'll, I'll say finally, this is a common misapprehension of India. That is, the whole country is just a bunch of people who are just leaving it all up to him and they have no economic incentive. They're just, you know, you know sitting around with one cloth over their body and out of the sun and just, you know, waiting for the food to drop in their mouth and no endeavor whatsoever. Hmm. Uh, uh, this misperception goes back to the uh, uh, early intellectuals of the West who studied India. Uh, they deemed it a fatalistic culture. But, it's, but no, for the most part, it's not that the mood is just to do nothing and depend on him. The mood is that the main occupation in life is spiritual development, and so all else is secondary. But because that concept is so alien to Western eyes, how could you not have economic development as your number one priority? 
And if you're going to be religious, well, that religion has to show in the profit column. <laughs> the, you know, it has to be some financial gains as a result of your religion, if you're going to bother religion at all. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a vision that has plagued the study of India. It's starting to fade now, especially as India becomes more and more economically powerful. Uh, that has its good effects and bad effects, too. That's another subject matter. But, uh, yes, leaving it up to him, as you say, doesn't mean that you uh, divest yourself of any endeavor. So therefore, uh, I think what you all are envisioning with your discussion group here, what you're setting out to do, has enormous impact for society. And I think as this social information that I've given you in the beginning becomes more and more prevalent, you're going to see a lot of people uh, listening to you more. All this, all this data that I'm giving you has just come out in the past really eight years. And more specifically, much of it in the past three years. So uh, you're going to be hearing a lot more about this, and you're going to be feeling, you're going to be feeling uh, quite confident about yourself that you're making the right choices. All right, so I think we'll end there. And I, I thank you all very much for your kind attention. So thank you. Once again, a warm thank you to David Mitchell for giving a very nice talk today. Thank you very much. will be um, a lunch uh, that we prepared for everybody today. It will be served in a buffet style in the back. So we're, as we're just preparing right now, we'll proceed to that part of the program. And while we're doing that, I'll just make a few housekeeping announcements. Uh, as was indicated during the talk, Dave Ramitaswamy is currently in Toronto for a few days and is giving uh, a few sessions. Uh, he started yesterday and they're continuing on over the course of the next few days. I'd like to call to attention Arti. If you can just raise your hand in the back. She's one of the main organizers, along with many others, who are coordinating these events. If you have any, would like more information about some of the future events that are taking place and want to learn more about them, which are covering a vast uh, range of topics, feel free to contact herself or uh, Sandeep, who will also raise his hand maybe in the front. Feel free to contact either one of those. Uh, a couple of other small announcements. Um, before you leave today, we ask if you could take those two minutes just to stop off at the desk in the back corner we have a small one-page feedback form. We'd love to hear back from everybody. Just circle off your responses. It'll help us uh, to coordinate events like this in the future and certainly make them more better for you. Um, hopefully you'll be able to come again in the future. It would just take a few minutes. It would help us out a lot. Uh, the second thing is that we also have a small table set up in the back with some literature, some books. A lot of the references that David Mutswami made to during uh, his discourse uh, you'll be able to learn more about that. For example, just that book, The Bible of Gita, we have copies in the back. Feel free to finger through those. We'll have someone there to help you out. Uh, I'd like to highlight one book in particular. This is by David Swami. It's called Fast Forward Beyond the Barriers of Limited Science. Uh, this is available in the back also. We had one more available, another one of his books called Perfect Escape, but unfortunately we sold out yesterday. So you should have come. So uh, that is available. 
Also, uh, we're very happy to say that we had um, we have a nice gift for everybody before you leave today, which is a, another small book called The Perfection of Yoga. And this gives a little bit of insight into uh, the tenets of bhakti yoga and how it relates uh, to the deeper meaning of what yoga is. So feel free before you leave again at that back table to stop off and pick up this small little book as a gift to you for coming. Inside the, the book there's a small little pamphlet for a, a, an event that we're doing this summer. It's the 35th Annual Festival of India held on Central Island. Uh, this festival has been going on for many years in Toronto. It draws about 30 to 40,000 people over the span of two days. And we have a free vegetarian feast for everyone at that time. There's exhibits, two stages of content point entertainment. So that's just a little reminder also. Uh, beyond that, I'm not sure if I've missed anything else. Maybe if I don't, if everyone doesn't mind, I think a big round of applause goes out to the organizers of the event for making it such a nice success. Also, another big round of applause for the uh, individuals who helped to bring uh, people here today from the School of Philosophy and the Spirituality of Work Group and the Yoga Community. So thank you for coming out. During the talk, when we're eating, we uh, encourage everyone who would like, you feel free to come forward and speak with David Mithaswamy. He'll be around for a little bit longer. Um, you're more than welcome to bring some chairs and uh, you know, move them around and come forward. And while we're eating, we can maybe have more of a talk. Uh, if you have any books that you would like to purchase, we're more than welcome to sign them. Uh, David Mithaswamy will sign them for you if you'd like also. And I think beyond that, I've covered my bases. That's all the announcements that we have. So again, thank you for this wonderful uh, afternoon program, and we hope to see more of you in the future, and we hope you had a good time. Thank you.